Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, we finally got the October employment situation report, and the U.S. economy added 214,000 jobs during the month, and the official unemployment rate dropped down to 5.8% from 5.9%. Again, this is the lowest we've been uh, since Obama took office, 5.8% unemployment. You would think with such low unemployment, President Obama would have uh, received uh, some kind of credit, right? And the Democrats would not have lost the U.S. Senate. So clearly, if voters are unhappy, there's got to be something wrong with that 5.8% unemployment number because it really doesn't tell the story. First of all, the 214,000 jobs that were created was below Wall Street estimates. We were looking for, or Wall Street was looking for, 240,000 jobs. And I think There was a whisper number. People were expecting the number to be higher than that. So people were looking for a positive surprise. So the fact that we not only, uh, you know, didn't beat the number, but that we missed it at $214,000. Initially, when the number came out, there was an immediate decline in the dollar. The euro rallied, yen rallied, uh, Canadian dollar rallied, Aussie dollar Then there was a dollar rally and the currencies sold off. But by the end of the day, all the currencies were back up on their intraday highs and the dollar went out near session lows. The bigger move was in the gold market. Gold prices finished up about $36 on the day. So they were initially rallied in response to the jobs number. And then after a pullback, uh, the rally kicked into higher gear. And in fact, the pullback was only very slight not like the currencies, which really gave up all of their gains before rallying late in the day. And I, I will talk about the markets a little bit later in the podcast. I want to get back to the jobs numbers themselves. And let's look a little bit beneath the headline, which is uh, something that most people don't do. So 214,000 jobs were created. But if you look at the single biggest category, it's food services, and drinking places, restaurants and bars, added 42,000 jobs in October. And that compares with the average of 26,000 jobs over the prior 12 months. So a much bigger than normal number of waiters, waitresses, and bartenders hired during the month of October. In fact, if the normal number of waiter and waitress jobs were created, we would have had under 200,000 jobs created in October. So we would have had a, you know, a 100 and something 
handle there. It would have been below 200,000. You know, the media makes a big deal over the fact that it's been over 200,000 now for uh, quite a few months. But again, it's quantity, not quality. That's why the average hourly work week was only up one-tenth of one percent following a unchanged number. Uh, oh, it's not, oh, it's average wages, average wages uh, earnings up one-tenth. And it, they were flat the month before. Wall Street was looking for a gain of 0.2 to 0.3%. So we got half the low end of the range. And one of the reasons is because so many people are tending bar and waiting tables. One of the reasons that so many people are taking these jobs is because they can't find the job they want. Oftentimes, if you're looking for a job and you can't find one, but you don't have any unemployment benefits, which was the case last year because the uh, extended unemployment benefits lapsed. So if you're looking for a good job and you can't find one, but you have to make ends meet, many times you will accept a job as a waiter or a waitress or a bartender because these are very flexible jobs. Uh, restaurants um, and bars are always looking for people. They have lots of different shifts, uh, so they're ideal uh, for part-time jobs or people that need flexibility, like you're still looking for a real job. But in the interim, you accept a waitress job in order to help pay the bills. And that is what we're seeing. In fact, you can look at the increase in the number of waiter and waitresses jobs, and you can measure that against the, you know, the decreasing number of manufacturing jobs. And pretty soon, we'll have more waiters, waitresses, and bartenders than people working in manufacturing. But you know, one of the big threats to the jobs in restaurants is going to be the minimum wage. You've got a lot of states that are going to be raising the minimum wage uh, in 2015. There's more pressure uh, on the federal level. And even though, you know, even though the Republicans control Congress, they still might vote for a higher minimum wage. That might be one of the things that gets thrown into a compromise bill. Because remember, a lot of the voters who voted for these Republican senators also voted to raise the minimum wage within their own states. The minimum, higher minimum wage is even popular among Republicans. So it shows you how, you know, how bad the concept is uh, with respect to the minimum wage. In fact, you know, I was here, I'm here in Puerto Rico and I gave a talk uh, yesterday and a former governor of Puerto Rico was in the audience and I got into an argument with this guy. He's the guy that actually brought the minimum wage to Puerto Rico. As, and he's, he's trying to tell me how increasing the minimum wage created all this employment in Puerto Rico and the unemployment rate went down. And the guy's just reinventing history in front of me because the, the statistics are clear that unemployment skyrocketed when Puerto Rico was first subject to the minimum wage. See, he thinks that, well, you know, when, when you raise wages, more people want to work and they go into the workforce. Sure, when you raise the price Right. If people can get more for their labor, they're willing to work. But the problem is when you raise the price of labor, employers buy less of it. Sure. If the minimum wage was one hundred dollars an hour, everybody who's unemployed would want a job. If you can get one hundred dollars an hour cooking French fries at McDonald's, who wouldn't want that job? There's very few people that wouldn't take it. But McDonald's isn't going to pay somebody one hundred dollars to cook French fries. That's the problem. Yes, you raise the minimum wage. More people want to work but you raise, raise the minimum wage and fewer employers want to hire. That is the problem. And you have to deal with reality, which is what you get when you let the market 
determine wages. But what's going to happen in the food service industry, if we keep pushing these minimum wage hikes, these companies are going to automate. They're going to mechanize and they'll use machines and robots. And so a lot of these jobs are going to be in jeopardy. And then what are they going to do? Now, in addition to the 42,000 jobs that were created uh, in restaurants and bars, we got 27,000 jobs in retail trade. So these are people that run cash registers or stock the shelves. Uh, Again, low-paying jobs. These are also good jobs for people who are working part-time because, again, there's a lot of shifts. You got these stores are open late at night. They open early in the morning. They stay open till late at night. Generally, you need several shifts, and they're also open weekends. A lot of these stores are open seven days a week. So clearly, they need a lot of people because not one, no one person can cover all those days. So they're ideal, again, for people who are still looking for work, but they need something in the meantime to help pay the rent uh, or their electric bills or their grocery bills. And so you're getting the increase in retail. Um, again, and then temporary jobs up 15,000. These are generally not high paying jobs. I mean, if you're hiring temporary help, uh, it's generally not going to be a good job. There's not going to be any benefits there. That's 15,000 jobs, 25,000 jobs in healthcare. Some of these jobs could be decent paying, but the majority are not. There's a lot of people that work in hospitals that are just orderlies, uh, janitors, food service people um, working in, 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 in hospitals. And so these are generally low-paying jobs. So add all these up, you got 109,000 jobs. Just over half of the jobs are really no good. You know, low-paying uh, jobs. And somebody who has one of these jobs, see, just because the unemployment rate is down, If you've got one of these jobs, you know, waiting tables and you used to be an engineer, right, or uh, you used to work in manufacturing, you used to have a good job and now you have this lousy job. Are you supposed to be happy about your lousy job? Yes, you are employed. Technically, you've got a job, but are you going to be happy about it? Are you going to go vote for a Democrat because you're, you know, you're so thankful that President Obama uh, won and he, you know, he kept his promise and, and he got you a job? No, you don't have the job you want. You don't have a job that you can support a family on, that you can pay a mortgage on, right? That, and that is why you're seeing all of the other anecdotal evidence of a weak economy. If you just look at the unemployment rate, that doesn't tell the story. If the labor force participation rate was the same today as it was when Obama was elected, just the labor force participation rate was the same. We'd have unemployment of over 10%. And imagine where it would be if the labor force participation rate was the same and and you counted as unemployed all the people who are working as a waiter or a bartender part time, but who are looking and are desiring a better job, but can't find them. In fact, that's one of the reasons that wages are not rising. People are saying, well, gee, we have like full employment. Why aren't wages rising? You know, there's hardly anybody left that doesn't have a job, so why can't people demand raises and why aren't employers forced by the scarcity of workers to increase pay? And the problem is there's a whole army of unemployed people out there that are not counted as being unemployed, but it still represents incredible slack in the labor market. You've got all these people working part-time jobs as waiters who would love to get a full-time job. So that's still competition for people who have full-time jobs. 
because they know and the employer knows that they don't have a lot of power to negotiate higher wages because they'll always offer a job to a waitress who would jump at a chance to get it, right? So you've got all this, these people that theoretically are there keeping the supply. And you also have people who have left the labor force. And if wages went up, they may re-enter the labor force. So you have this pool, this potential pool uh, of workers overhanging the market, keeping a lid on wages. Plus, you also have the escalation in the employment costs associated with rules and regulations such as Obamacare. And so if employers have to spend more money on government-mandated benefits or other regulations, they have less money available to pay to workers. Because from an employer's perspective, he doesn't care whether he gives the money to the worker or whether he gives the money uh, to the government or to a lawyer or to an accountant, right? It's all the same. It's all part of the labor costs. And it all has to be covered, though, by the productivity of the worker. The worker has to deliver enough productivity to his employer to pay for all the ancillary costs of the accountant, the lawyer, the bureaucrats. It's all on the worker's back. And if he can't produce enough to cover all these costs, then he's not going to get a job. So again, beneath the surface, Wall Street, the media, hey, it's great news, over 200,000 jobs, 5.8% unemployment. But you know what? It's not a good picture. And in fact, that's why we did have a sell-off in the dollar and a rally in gold, because we did not get a good number or a better than expected number. To me, again, it shows the deceleration that the effects of QE3 are wearing off and the hangover is beginning. And again, I expect us to continue to deteriorate in the months ahead. Maybe this will be the last of the jobs reports where we're over 214,000 jobs. We'll see. You know, uh, we've had this streak for a while, but now that the Fed has officially ended quantitative easing, and, you know, if you, when we get to this Christmas season, right, a lot of these retail jobs were probably added by stores that are anticipating a very, very lucrative Christmas. And I don't think it's in the cards. I mean, I read the articles and the forecasts are for the best Christmas, uh, you know, in a decade or so. Everybody is optimistic. But if you look at the sales reports, in fact, I've read these articles now that a lot of stores now want to be open all day on Thanksgiving Day. They don't want to wait till Black Friday. They want to start on Thanksgiving because some stores are going to be open Thanksgiving and other stores are afraid that if they don't open Thanksgiving, by the time Thanksgiving is over, the consumer will be tapped out and won't have any money left for Black Friday. So the pressure keeps on building because the consumer is really in worse and worse shape and everybody is competing for their slice of this diminishing pie. In fact, we did get consumer credit numbers out on Friday later in the day after the jobs numbers. And again, the big surge in credit, $14.5 billion increase of the $16 billion or 15.9, was for car loans and student loans. Only $1.4 billion for credit card debt. And of course, credit cards are how Americans spend. But most of their borrowing now is going for you know, college and automobiles. And of course, why is all this credit flowing 
in that direction because the government is subsidizing it. The government is subsidizing auto loans by actually directly uh, underwriting the loans. And obviously, student loans are all government loans. Credit cards, you know, you have to qualify for a credit card without a government guarantee. And so obviously, that credit is getting increasingly harder to come by. And I believe Americans are relying more on their credit cards for necessities. They're not taking it to the mall and buying clothing or furniture or consumer electronics. They're taking their credit card to the gas station or to the supermarket so that they can uh, buy fuel and, and food. But one of the other reasons that we have this spectacular increase in student loan debt is because people are so desperate for money that they're enrolling in colleges, not because they want the education, but because they want the money. They want the loans. And you can't qualify for a college loan unless you're in college. So it's pretty simple. Just enroll. In fact, there's a lot of online universities that you can enroll in and borrow a bunch of money. So I think, uh, you know, this really exaggerates the, 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 the situation because you have all these people really getting some kind of a degree, not even caring that the degree itself is worthless, not even concerned about what they're majoring in. They're just, you know, looking to, to pay the bills. And the only solution they can come up with to get money now is student loans. You know, it's better than going to a loan shark or something like that. So just, you know, enroll in some online course and uh, start collecting money. And most of the money that you get on a student loan, you don't have to use the money for tuition. You don't have to use it for books. You can use your student loan money for whatever you want. And that's what people are doing. Uh, but meanwhile, that's where all the credit is going and towards new automobiles. So if you're buying a new car or if you're borrowing all this money, you're probably not going to be spending it at the department store. So I don't think that this Christmas, for a whole bunch of reasons, is going to be nearly as strong as people think, which means a lot of the jobs that have been added in the retail sector uh, in the second half of the year, as retailers, are, retailers have been gearing up for a very robust Christmas and maybe a big recovery in 2015, when they're disappointed by reality, I expect a lot of layoffs. And again, not just in retail, but I think across the spectrum, I think you've had a lot of employers who have been just as fooled by all uh, the propaganda from government and all the cheerleading from Wall Street and, and, and the, the media about the strength of this U.S. recovery, and they've geared up. They've hired some people or they've held on to people they might otherwise have laid off because they're anticipating a big pickup in business when we don't get it right? We're going to get a lot of layoffs. That unemployment rate is going to start to head back up, which means uh, QE is going to be ramped back up. And um, all this rate talk is going, to be, uh, is going to be pushed off. Let's get, though, to the markets, because it was a very interesting week in the markets. You know, after a big, big decline in crude oil, we did bounce back a little bit late in the week, but still finishing below $80 a barrel, 78.43 on crude oil. But even the big uh, um, drop in crude oil uh, late in the week really didn't uh, do much for the stock market. I mean, the Dow did finish the week up slightly. I mean, in the last day, it was still new record highs. I mean, 17,573. That's a new record close on a weekly basis, probably for the Dow. The NASDAQ finished the week just down six points on Friday, but again, up in record territory. Well, not record territory, 14 and a half year highs. We still haven't taken out the highs uh, from 2000 on the NASDAQ. 
Ultimately, we probably will do that. S&P at new highs as well. I think a lot of it uh, was helped by Mario Draghi. The euro midweek uh, was kind of in, in rally mode. We were above 125. And then Draghi came out with a statement that really reversed the euro that day. Even though it did close positive on Friday, it's still below 125, like 124 and a half. But Mario Draghi came out and said, look, there's no dissension. There's no mutiny. Uh, we are going to plow ahead, forge ahead with uh, European QE. Don't worry about it. We're going to be printing a bunch of money and buying a bunch of bonds. Uh, so don't, don't have any concerns that that's not going to happen. Right? And that really sent the euro uh, down the idea that no matter what, um, Europe is going to do something really, really stupid. And of course, you know, they don't put it in those words. They, they think, Draghi thinks it's a great thing. Print a bunch of money, buy a bunch of bonds, create a bunch of inflation. But the reason the currencies, your currency goes down when you talk about that is because it's a bad thing. It undermines your economy. It undermines the standard of living of your people. And I think the, at least the foreign exchange market seems to recognize that. If you're going to do QE, it's bad for your country and bad for your currency. And so your currency goes down. But stocks do go up. But why do stocks go up in response to QE? Because stocks are an inflation hedge, because stocks are real assets, and because companies have debt. And when you create inflation, you transfer wealth from the debtor to the equity holder. So from a corporate ownership perspective, inflation benefits the stockholders to the detriment of the bondholders. So yes, the stock prices will rise when governments threaten uh, to uh, inflate away their obligations. So just like when governments use inflation to wipe out their own debt, they also wipe out everybody else's debt who has debt, debt in the same currency that's being inflated. So if, if uh, the ECB wants to help Italy wipe out its euro debt and Spain wipe out its debt, and Greece wipe out its debt. It also helps all of the European companies that have euro-denominated debt wipe out their debts. So you do get these rallies. But the big move, the big move on the week came in the precious metals market, gold and silver. Gold finished, I think, with its biggest gain of the year, up about $36 on the day. In fact, gold and gold stocks, after making new multi-year lows, this week managed to close positive on the week not a full outside weekly reversal we didn't take out last week's highs that would have been almost impossible considering the huge drop we had last week and that we closed on the weekly lows but we did take out those lows earlier in the week and then close not only above last week's close but on the highs for the week so a nice rally it's premature i would say to say definitively that this correction is over, this bear market is over, and that we've put in a bottom. I did mention on the podcast last week that to me, it smelled and looked a lot like capitulation, that we had finally gotten to that stage with the rapidity with which these gold stocks were collapsing, the valuations being absurdly low. So it did look a very suspicious like capitulation. And I think the action this week, if it's sustained, particularly next week, uh, could increase the evidence that that was capitulation and, in fact, it's ended. But to say that decisively, I think we need to see gold closing not just above 1200 I think we need to see gold closing above 1250 If we get a, If we get a rally like that, 
you know, we're still, you know, 1178 or so is where we, we ended the week, not even back above 1200. Uh, but I think we got to get above 1250 to really say that uh, the bottom is in with a lot of conviction because there, it still could be choppy uh, for a little bit, uh, considering how many people uh, are been shorting this market. In fact, my guess is that there was a lot of short covering today, too, because once we got that jobs data to come out and it wasn't even better than expected, that might have uh, given uh, the shorts a reason to cover. Of course, also going into the, the weekend, uh, that might have also fueled it. So if short covering rally is not that healthy, we need to see some new longs coming into the market. And I'm not sure whether or not that happened. The, the gold stocks, if you look at the, uh, the Huey index, that index was up 8% on Friday alone. And I saw there are several stocks that I saw up 15, 20% on the day. But these stocks came down dramatically also. So you're still, even after these moves, in fact, on Thursday, the Huey was up 4%. So 4% Thursday, 8% on Friday. So these are big moves. But again, they're coming uh, from a very oversold condition and after even bigger moves to the downside. But I do believe that we will continue to see weakening economic data coming out of the United States and therefore increasing questioning of the taper is over, rate hikes are coming scenario. And I think despite the words that we got from Mario Draghi, European QE is not a done deal. There is plenty of objection among the central bankers tied to the Bundesbank and other northern European economies that do not want QE. And there are lots of legal impediments to the ECB just buying sovereign debt of, of, of particular countries. So it is not a sure thing that we're going to have QE in Europe. And to the extent that we have it, I don't think it'll be nearly as grand a, an experiment, you know, as large as people believe. Meantime, nobody thinks the Fed is going to do any QE. The Fed's going to do it. And there is no impediment, no legal impediment, uh, no, no, there's nothing, nobody is going to get in front of Janet Yellen. If the economic data disappoints, if the economy heads south in a more uh, obvious way, if the unemployment rates start ending up, not only won't there be any objection to QE4, they will be demanding it. Wall Street will be demanding it. The government will be demanding it. The scary part will be not only are we going to get QE4, but we're also going to get a big stimulus package from the government. Because I think that the new, newly elected Republican moderates that control the Congress are eager to show that they are bipartisan, that they can work with the president. This is not a Tea Party confront, you know, confrontational Congress. This is a get-along, me-too, big government, Republican Congress, and they're going to want to uh, come together with the president and create a stimulus. They're not going to want to seem as the roadblock. They don't want Obama to be able to run against the do-nothing Republican Congress, even though that's what they're going to do no matter what. But they're going to want to be seen as cooperating and trying to help the economy. And so they're going to put together a package of tax cuts, temporary tax cuts for workers, for the middle class. And it's going to probably have maybe a minimum wage increase uh, to, for the president and more government spending. So we're going to get the worst of all worlds. We're going to get stimulus from the Fed, money printing, inflation. 
We're going to get Keynesian stimulus from the government, bigger deficits, more government spending, higher minimum wage. Uh, all this stuff is just going to uh, compound. And the, this, you know, this dollar rally will have ended. The gold bear market will have ended. And I think that sometime by you know, mid-2015, it is going to be looking completely different. The investment landscape, the rhetoric. And my, the question for me, question for me is, how long is it going to take uh, gold uh, to make a new high? How long is it going to take for the dollar to make a new low? Because this is going to be a big revelation. And if you remember how quickly the dollar fell and how quickly gold rallied in response to QE1, See, by the time they did QE3, the effect was muted because now people were looking beyond QE3 to the exit strategy. So QE1 and QE2 had a big effect on the dollar to the downside and gold to the upside. Not so much QE3, which has really gotten people to you know, question the assumption of whether or not QE uh, is even good for gold or bad for the dollar. So they'll say, look, we did QE3 and gold went down. And the dollar went up. So therefore, QE is not necessarily uh, bearish for the dollar and bullish for gold. Yes, it is. It's only because people were looking beyond QE3 to the end of the program. They were discounting that. But once QE4 comes in, it's a shocker. It's a game changer. And I think QE4 will have the biggest effect on the dollar to the downside and gold to the upside. I think it'll be much more dramatic than QE1. Because there were a lot of people that were probably anticipating QE1. Nobody, nobody but me, as far as I can tell, uh, thinks we're going to have a QE4. And no one is also talking about a combination of, of monetary and fiscal stimulus. See, everybody thinks, oh, now that, now that the Republicans have both, both houses of Congress, right, there's no chance for any compromise. I think there's a greater chance of, for compromise now with the Republicans in control of Congress than when the Republicans just had the House of Representatives. Today's financial advisors behave like pro-wrestling TV commentators. They scream that the recovery is strong, debt is manageable, inflation is low, and that the Federal Reserve has everything under control. They may be oblivious, but the danger is real. Looking beyond the media hype can open a world of broader investing ideas. Euro-Pacific Capital is a registered investment advisor that offers stock-focused wealth management services that closely follow the strategy of our founder and CEO, Peter Schiff. We concentrate on those countries that are more closely in tune with Peter's vision of how capitalism is supposed to work. And these investments are not hard to find, provided you know where to look. Isn't it time you change the channel and let Euro-Pacific put a little reality back into your portfolio? If you live in the United States and have $25,000 or more to invest, call 800-727-7922. That's 800-727-7922. Non-U.S. residents access similar strategies through Euro-Pacific Bank at europacbank.com. Euro-Pacific Capital and Euro-Pacific Bank are affiliated companies.